Welcome to Sights and Sounds, a series of podcasts presented by the Gotham Center for New York City History for Open House New York Weekend. In this episode, Andrea Frona talks about the African burial ground in Lower Manhattan, where the remains of as many as 20,000 Africans, slave and free, buried in the 17th and 18th centuries, were uncovered in the late 20th. We don't often associate New York City with slavery, but the size of this graveyard, the oldest and largest excavated site in North America, reminds us of the large role it played in building the city, just as it did the country at large. Frona, Associate Professor of African Art History at Ohio University, is the author of The African Burial Ground in New York City, Memory, Spirituality, and Space. For more podcasts like this, and for more Gotham Center programming, visit us at gothamcenter.org and sign up to our mailing list. Thanks for listening. I'll be talking mainly about two historical periods. One is the 18th century in colonial New York, and the other is the late 20th and 21st centuries. During almost all of the 1700s, a communal cemetery was being used by Africans and people of African descent in Lower Manhattan. About 15,000, possibly over 20,000 people were buried in an area almost seven acres in size or seven city blocks. In the late 20th century, an office building was constructed on a portion of the African burial ground, and following that, several artworks have been commissioned to commemorate the site. So I'll be taking you on a tour of the architectural space and the surrounding urban space, specifically 290 Broadway, right next to City Hall Park and just up from the Woolworth Building. I'll be sharing quotes and excerpts with you from my book, The African Burial Ground in New York City, Memory, Spirituality, and Space. There are three overarching key points to share with you. One, this is the largest and oldest African and African-American cemetery in North America. Two, this cemetery tells us that slavery existed in the northern United States. Three, the cemetery provides a direct connection between Africa and the United States. So, where were the people from who were taken from Africa? When New York was called New Amsterdam under Dutch control between 1626 and 1664, the majority of Africans were brought from Angola, the Congo area in Central Africa, Guinea, the Calabar in Nigeria, the Gold Coast, which is now Ghana, in West Africa, and also the island of Curaçao off of Venezuela in South America, because Stuyvesant was the director of both Curaçao and New Amsterdam. Under the British, from 1664 to 1776, Africans were primarily taken from Jamaica, Barbados, and Antigua. Also, there were ship owners in New York who sailed from Madagascar, which would have been an incredibly long journey. I will start by situating us at 290 Broadway, now known as the Ted Vice Building. It's a 34-story office building built and managed by GSA, the General Services Administration, a federal agency. It cost $276 million. In 1990, GSA bought the land from the city. In 1991, the architectural firm was selected and commissioned later in 1991 archaeological testing occurred, which confirmed the presence of bones at this sacred site. 
The reason I tell you these dates is to emphasize that there was no accidental discovery by construction workers of the cemetery. Proper research had been done ahead of time to identify the site through existing historical documents. Now, there were several problems which ended up bringing the burial ground to the attention of the public. Accidents started to happen because excavation of the bones was simultaneously with construction of the office building. For instance, concrete was poured, damaging 20 burials when construction crews had an out-of-date map and used a backhoe to lay footing for the tower. These accidents prompted newspaper stories. Peggy King Yorda, assistant to Mayor David Dinkins and later head of the memorialization project, noted, it really did not hit a lot of people until after some of the remains were destroyed, and then it just hit the papers, and there was this hysteria about what the government was actually doing. From 1990 to 1992, excavation was occurring. There was no plan with how to handle the remains, how to study the remains, and what to do with them. Bones were being removed so quickly that they could not be properly stored in environmentally controlled rooms some bones were wrapped in newspapers and mold began to form on them. Additionally, a European agency was in charge of the excavation at the time. Illinois Representative Gus Savage read about these things in the newspaper and immediately flew to New York to hold hearings because he chaired the Congressional Committee that oversaw GSA, the Subcommittee on Public Buildings and Grounds. He ended the hearing by saying, This hearing is going no further because this regional director, Bill Diamond of GSA, is opposed to responding to the wishes expressed here today and has been in violation of Section 106 and the Memorandum of Agreement. Don't waste your time asking this subcommittee for anything else as long as I'm chair unless you can figure out a way to go around me. I am not going to be part of your disrespect. The courtroom erupted in celebratory cheers. Three days later, the excavation on the pavilion site was shut down. Gus Savage had held office for six terms representing the south side of Chicago. Throughout his career, he had worked as a civil rights advocate, and it was he, as a journalist, who had first printed the shocking photograph of 14-year-old Emmett Till's murdered body in 1955. The activist efforts that brought on government officials was very important. I attended public updates, open houses, and hearings from 1996 to 2003, and it was really this activism that transformed a once marginalized chapter in African and African-American history into a local and national issue in the early 1990s. David Patterson, who was senator of New York at the time, said the handling of this burial ground symbolizes the desecration of black people. Activist Miriam Francis said, if it was an African find, we wanted to make sure that it was interpreted from an African point of view. Ilan Brath, chair of Patrice Lumumba Coalition said, we could not guarantee that those who reposed at the site received justice 200 years ago because we were not there, but we are here today and it seems that they have arisen from their slumber to put that awesome responsibility on us now. Again, Senator David Patterson, we might not know where our great-great-grandparents are buried, but these are their representatives. These are our ancestors. 
And so that becomes very important that anyone living in the New York area or whose family had lived for generations in the New York area could in fact be descendants of these possibly plus 20,000 people. As a result of Gus Savage's hearings, there were several reforms put into place. And I'll briefly go through those because you start to see a reclamation and a reconstitution of the African burial ground here. $3 million was allocated for protection and memorialization of the African burial ground. This was voted and passed by Congress and and approved by the president. George H.W. Bush also signed Public Law 102-393, which ordered GSA not to build the proposed pavilion site. There was So there was supposed to be a pavilion behind the office building, which is actually where the National Monument is right now. But there was an incredibly dense area of burials, three layers deep in this area, and those have not been disturbed. They still remain as part of an underground cemetery. And by the way, the cemetery at this particular location was protected by 25 feet of fill because Manhattan used to be hilly. And right around the turn of the 19th century, Manhattan was flattened. And so those lower lying areas had to be leveled by putting 25 feet of sand and earth on top of the cemetery. There are other parts of the cemetery that have been disturbed already. So another reform was that a federal steering committee was formed with African-American involvement and that developed recommendations on the future of the site and presented them to Congress in 1993. All of these seven recommendations have occurred except for one. And these recommendations sometimes took years, if not over a decade, to be put into place. Artworks to commission the site, a signage program so that you would know when you were standing above the burial ground. We still don't know the exact boundaries of the whole area. I have a map on page three of my book that suggests the boundaries. Install an exhibit inside the lobby of the office building. There's now a visitor center. Reinter the remains in the pavilion area. This occurred in 2003 through an international weekend-long funerary ceremony on the front page of the New York Times Part of Broadway was shut down, and there was a procession up Broadway. During the weekend-long vigil, there were offerings that were left for the dead. Um, I have photographs of, of letters written to the dead. All of this was reburied during the reburial. You can compare this desire for communicating with the dead and leaving gifts and offerings with Ground Zero. So, what are the artworks? How do the artworks recall and remember and recognize the African burial ground. There's no realistic representation or visual data of what the 18th century cemetery looked like. We don't know the boundaries, and also we don't know the names of the deceased of any of the 419 graves that were excavated. I've identified several components in the artworks. One is that the artworks have a communication and a veneration with the ancestors. Two is that the pieces express iterations of Africa in North America. And three is that there's African-American history that's visually recounted. And finally, that there's a direct linking of the New York City African diaspora with the African burial ground, because such a high population of the people in the burial ground came directly from Africa. The New Ring Shout is a piece that's inside the lobby of the office building. It's 40 feet in diameter on the floor in the middle of the lobby. 
It was installed in 1994, and the artists are Houston Conwell, his sister, who's a poet, Estella Conwell Majozo, and architect Joseph DePace. The team has also done a piece in the Schomburg and in many cities in the country. The new ring shout is a complex geospiritual mapping based largely on the ring shout, which is the oldest African-American performance of spirituality held during or after Christian prayer meetings, especially among Gullah people in Georgia and South Carolina. The new ring shout is also based on the Congo Cosmogram, and we know that Africans came from the Congo area to New Amsterdam. The Congo Cosmogram has a horizontal and a vertical line to create a crossroads that marks the intersection of the living and the dead. And there are four large circles that mark stages of life, birth, death, and rebirth. And this cosmogram is based on Robert Farris Thompson's writings in the book The Flash of the Spirit. The blue outer ring of the piece contains New York State African-American ancestors, including Zora Neale Hurston, Sojourner Truth, and Harriet Tubman. The inside has a mapping of New York City, spaces of diaspora, spaces where large groups of people get together to connect with each other. And then there's a spiral dance line that ends at the African burial ground. So the burial ground is mapped, and you're standing then on top of the artwork with the cemetery directly below your feet. In an interview with Conwell, he explains this is a way of reconnecting people to what has happened. People have to deal with what the building is on. Another artwork is called Renewal. It's very long, 38-foot silk screen on canvas across from the elevators in the office building. It's bright red with also colors of yellow, green, and black, the Pan-African liberation colors. It was installed in 1998, and the artist is Asian-American Tomea Arai. She did lots of interviews and talked with people involved with the burial ground and ended up putting a Sankofa on the left-hand side of the silk screen. You can see it in the left pillar as a heart shape. There's a heart-shaped motif that was tacked into Burial 101, the coffin lid of Burial 101, with tacks or with iron nails. And it's been interpreted that this heart shape is a Sankofa, which is an Adinkra from Ghana. There's other scholarly work that suggests it is not a Sankofa, that it may be with tacks missing, that it inscribes the date of when the person died. In either case, what's important is that the Sankofa becomes an important motto for the African burial ground. It gets printed on the tops of newsletters. It gets put in several of the artworks here. And basically, Sankofa is part of Adinkra, which is ideographic writing system from Ghana. And each of these symbols carries a proverb. The Sankofa proverb is look to the past to inform the future. And so Arai has organized her renewal silkscreen through the concept of this Sankofa, where layers of time infiltrate, pass through, and are layered on top of each other. So you have different moments in African-American history, such as Seneca Village, which was a Black community in Central Park starting in 1825. 
You have the New York African Free School. You have the front cover of the 1741 conspiracy proceedings. You have a map of the Marshalk Plan, which is an important map that marks the Negro's burying ground from 1755. You also have in the left pillar the names of the first 11 African males who were brought to New York, including Simon Congo and Pualo Dangola. These are all key moments in the formation of the New York City African diaspora. Now, in the apex of renewal, in the top triangle, there is an IFA divination tray. An IFA is a system used among Yoruba people in Nigeria and Yoruba diasporas, including Brazil, Cuba, Puerto Rico, Trinidad, Miami, New York City. The diviner can answer questions about the future, but also offer guidance for the present or tell us our life purpose. The Babalawa will throw cowrie shells for the divination. So the artist here has replaced the cowrie shells and instead put inside the Ifa divination tray remains, funerary remains from the African burial ground. So this idea of looking to the past, looking to the future through the African burial ground. And I'll go through those remains to give you a sense of what was excavated. There's a thousand-page archaeological and anthropological report you can read online that tells you what was excavated and what was analyzed. I have that condensed in Chapter 3 of my book. But what the artist has in her divination tray is copper pins. And this is the funerary object that was the highest number in the excavation because most of the skeletons were wrapped in white shroud and the white shrouds were held together with copper pins. There are also buttons. Burial 6 in particular had buttons with anchors on them. The anchor buttons were off of a British Revolutionary War uniform, but the uniform was not in the coffin, so it's the anchor motif and the circular shape of the button that becomes important and that connects this man to the water. He was 25 to 30 years old in a hexagonal coffin, and he was buried in the late period, which would be after 1776 up until the cemetery closed around 1795. His teeth were filed, and people with filed teeth only had that in Africa. That practice did not occur in New York City. He was, in fact, born in Africa. However, his bones show the effect of forced labor. There was bone scarring from inflammation in his legs, enlarged area of bone in his legs. He had osteoarthritis, and 25 to 30-year-olds don't get arthritis, but many people in the cemetery did have arthritis because their bodies were worked so hard. He also had severe stress to his neck. Also depicted in the apex of renewal is a piece of silver jewelry, and this was the silver bob that would have been part of a necklace. It was placed at the neck of the deceased, and it was a child. The child was three and a half to five and a half years old in burial 254. There was a very high number of children buried in the cemetery. So the people who were born in New York oftentimes did not survive childhood. There was malnutrition, a lot of dental problems, and just a lot of obstacles as well as the forced labor. People who were born in New York, their bones and their teeth show that their childhood and the life they lived in Africa that was very healthy with strong bones and teeth and good nutrition.
I'm going to take you now to an artwork that's outside of the building. If you walk outside the back of the building and look towards Foley Square and the Supreme Courthouse, you can see Lorenzo Pace's piece, Triumph of the Human Spirit, installed in 2000. It's made of black granite and it extends 60 feet upwards. Lorenzo Pace really wanted a sculpture and a, a fountain that would contrast with the neoclassical architecture surrounding it, all of the courthouses in this civic center of New York. And since several television shows are filmed here, you can often see Lorenzo Pace's piece in the cutaway shots, especially Law and & Order and Blue Bloods. Triumph of the Human Spirit is inspired by Chihuahua. Chihuahua is a spirit entity from Mali among the Bamana people that has to do with farming and reproduction and abundance. It's an antelope figure that Lorenzo Pace has abstracted into this contemporary design that he really wants people of any generation to be able to access and enjoy. The public can engage with it. They can walk up to it. They can sit on the edge they can eat lunch by sitting on the World's Fair benches looking at the fountain. Finally, we have the National Monument, which is outside of the office building behind it, designed by Rodney Leon and his architectural firm, and it's called the Ancestral Libation Chamber from 2007. It's the final work to officially memorialize the site. The piece combines slavery with many global cosmologies. As you approach, you can see the Sankofa on the outside wall, the heart-shaped motif, and you can also read a libation text. It reads, For all those who were lost, for all those who were stolen, for all those who were left behind, for all those who were not forgotten. As you visit this monument, you descend, you go down to meet the ancestors in the earth. This is not a monument that extends up into the sky but takes you away from the physical world down into the ancestral realm. As you get to the bottom, there's a map in the center. Africa is in the center of the map. It's not North America and it's not Europe. And there are radiating lines showing the many diasporas that have formed. In order for the peace to become a national monument, a proclamation has to be made by the President of the United States. And it took over a decade for everything to be put into place. But eventually, Mayor Bloomberg made a written request to the president. And I'd like to read to you a little bit of the speech the Secretary of Interior made. As a nation, we will not allow a steel and glass tower to cover holy ground. As a nation, we give persons of African descent a place of reconnection with their beginnings, ancestry, culture, and heritage. Here, instead of contestation and the fighting, you have this moment where an entity of the government is calling for the African burial ground to be embraced by the government and become a part of the body politic, if not the national identity. In conclusion, the arts, along with grassroots activism, begin to subvert a secular office building in recuperating the sanctified space of the dead. The commemorative works interrupt mainstream hegemonic American histories by giving voice to once lost ancestors. Through complex relationships of space, spirituality, and memory, the African burial ground is a part of the everyday landscape of Lower Manhattan. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Sights and Sounds. Be sure to check out the rest of our podcasts at GothamCenter.org and sign up to our mailing list to find out about other programming here at the Gotham Center for New York City History.